Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, BBC Three won't move online until next year, its controller says, but with the trust not reporting back until the autumn, are they jumping the gun? A court in Germany rules against newspapers in a case on ad-blocking software. Yes, it's part 76 of our discussion on paying for news online. Plus, bad weeks for Katie Hopkins and Piers Morgan, good times at Sky and Netflix, and we'll round up the best coverage from the UK election campaign. This is the Media Podcast, sponsored by Audioboom. And with me today at the Hospital Club is the head honcho of the Guardian Edinburgh International Television Festival. It's Lisa Campbell. Hi, Lisa. Hello. Big thank you especially for taking time out of your week this week because you've got your big launch on Tuesday. We have indeed, yes. As it's our 40th anniversary, we're pulling out all the stops to do a Scottish-themed press breakfast. So we have got not one, but three MasterChef finalists cooking breakfast for the press. So the winner, he'll be announced on Friday. We'll be working with Adam Handling, who has the Caxton Grill at the St Ermin's Hotel in London and he's a former finalist and will also be joined by Pink Coombs so I think we've got whiskey smoked salmon on the menu which is delightful. Also joining us this week is the broadcast consultant and all-round smoothie it says here Paul Robinson. Hello Paul. Hello I was going to say when I was on the Edinburgh Festival Committee which I did for about 15 years crisps and smoothies what we got this is amazing (laughs) the culinary delights Lisa my goodness. (laughs) But you are no stranger to uh, delights because you were at MIP TV in Canada. Uh, Now, for listeners who aren't part of this media bubble where you go around expensive conferences, this is another one of those things where people fly all the way to the south of France to talk about telly. Uh, What was it like this year? Well, really, it's a market. I mean, there is a conference and the conference is very good, but actually it's where people buy and sell TV programmes. I mean, you may think it's very sophisticated, but it's not. People actually go and meet in bars and hotels and restaurants, go to stands, uh, screen programmes, and that's how TV programmes are bought around the world. That's that's how it's done. It happens to be done in the south of France, nice croisette, 25 degrees, and a bit of uh, good French wine to go down. Yeah, difficult to complain about that. But one advantage you've got, Lisa, for your event this year is it's finally not going to be at a weekend. No, people get their bank holiday weekend back for the first time in 40 years so it's running from Wednesday to Friday this year that's the 26th to 28th of August and yeah we've got a much more international feel this year so amazing channel bosses from FX, Discovery, Showtime, HBO A big screening with Amazon. Uh, They're coming over to do Hand of God, which stars Ron Perlman. And we're doing something quite nice with Sky Arts. Their uh, finalists from the Portrait Artist of the Year are going to be there doing a painting, potentially of our McTaggart speaker. That sounds brilliant. I was going to say, which day is the McTaggart now? Because it always was the Friday night. You'd arrive in Edinburgh Friday night, McTaggart lecture. Where's it going to be in the schedule now? Uh, It's the Wednesday night, so it's the first night. So we uh, we have our opening session, which is Big Brother, which really excited about because I think people have wanted to do that for years, but it's been uh, 
impossible, expensive. And it's actually been fascinating trying to convince TV executives to go on the other side and to go in that house. So having those conversations about, we won't humiliate you, honestly. You know, you can trust us. Um, <laughs> they clearly know the yeah, arguments. Yeah, we believe they, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right, let's talk about telly now. But moving on to the BBC, where plans to move BBC Three online have been postponed until 2016, uh, according to Broadcast Magazine. The delay is down to the BBC Trust, who won't be ruling on the proposals until September, uh, which controller Damien Kavanagh says won't leave enough time to plan and promote the move before the end of the year. Now, we had expected an initial decision in June. Uh, Lisa, this is kind of dragging on forever now. In the public's mind, BBC Three is dead man walking. Uh, Their top shows, the Seth MacFarlane ones, let's be honest, the imports, are moving to IT. TV. Uh, This is getting a bit embarrassing now, isn't it? It really is. I I think it was completely bizarre that they would sell off Family Guy, the the kind of crown jewels of the channel in many ways, before they even had permission from the trust. So I I find that very odd that they've even been allowed to do that. So any discussions around alternatives, whether it's Jimmy Mulville and John Thoday's idea of, you know, them running it, or, um, you know, any conversations with UK TV who could have, have partnered and run the channel, and wouldn't that have been a perhaps a better solution. I mean, it's just really bizarre, I think, the way this whole thing has been handled and to just be going backwards and forwards like this just does not do them any favours. And Paul, do you think actually, when it comes down to it, the Trust are going to actually uh, greenlight this proposal? Or do you think there is a chance it might end up reversing like they did with Six Music and, and end up as it was? Well, you never know with the BBC Trust. But what I find strange, and I do agree with Lisa, is that this wasn't done for strategic reasons because we believe it's the right thing to do, you know, because young viewers are going online, linear channels are less relevant to that audience. We're therefore going to put BBC Three, our young service, onto online. It was done to save money. Now, the BBC has to argue and is arguing that it's actually um, tight for cash and uh, is trying to demonstrate it's very efficient by, you know, making savings and closing BBC Three to a large extent, it's a political move to say, hey, we're so, we're so strapped for cash, we're closing a channel. But the reality is it's not going to save that much. Um, and this um, backs and forwards and, and procrastination, I think, really does make the BBC look very, very silly. And they'd obviously not anticipated, I don't think any of us had, uh, the proposal that you were referring to there, Lisa, from Hattrick and Avalon. How do you think the BBC have actually dealt with that? It was quite a provocative move, and yet it's still there, isn't it, in the shadows? It's still there on the sidelines as a possibility. People say, well, why not do some of the things they're suggesting? Yeah, and I, I think there are you know, a whole host of difficulties around it from rights issues and branding and everything else, but, you know probably not insurmountable but it doesn't feel as though the BBC is particularly engaged with that and and had those conversations I think that's just what's the most disappointing just the sort of finality of the announcement and now things aren't being commissioned um, so there's going to be a big hole but then you know just a lack of clarity about the kind of programmes people should be pitching um, and what that means going forward. And we had um, Stacey Dooley at um, Ed Talks event recently and she was absolutely amazing. I mean, she's made 40 films over the years that she's been working for BBC Three. You know, she was discovered through um, Blood, Sweat and T-shirts as a contributor and has such a natural persona and really, really down-to-earth approach. You know, she's not the kind of white man in chinos going into sort of war zones you know she's very very much on that level of of the younger audience and it's very hard to think of where else you would either grow that talent or bring those fantastically important issues to a younger audience in such an engaging way and I think that is such a loss. 
And even those entertainment shows, actually, you know, if you're talkback or open mic and you've got your new entertainment comedy panel show hosted by Rizzle Kicks, you know, you're not going to take it anymore to BBC Three because you're going to think, well, they don't have the budget, they don't know what they're doing. Where do you go with that kind of idea? You have to take it to their competitors, I guess, E4 and ITV2. Yeah, and, and, and you know, we must remember that the BBC is a public service broadcaster and supporting new talent, developing new talent, giving it a platform is a key part of what the BBC is for. That's why we pay the licence fee, why we're happy to pay the licence fee. Now, you know, they're coming up to a new t- charter renewal this is a real fudge and a real mess and exactly as Lisa says if these people are not given a chance you know this is really fundamentally against public purposes this is what the BBC should be doing and they're they're fudging the whole thing so I think black mark for the BBC it's not that uh, inconsistent for the BBC to be rather sort of um, mealy-mouthed about making a decision people won't take responsibility no one will actually you know say I'm going to own this problem and make a decision it's all a bit sort of well you know it's somebody else's issue and it feels a bit like that that no one is really properly driving this if they're going to go online go online and make it work you know and you can still support new talent but make sure you're not causing all this um, uncertainty in the market both for suppliers but also for viewers okay well let's talk about the online marketplace next and a story about newspaper websites in particular Uh, a court in germany has ruled that a tech company can continue to block adverts online including on news sites Uh, the software is called adblock plus and it prevents browsers from displaying banner in article and pop-up adverts the case was brought by two German news organisations, Desite and Handelsblatt, and there are three other cases in the pipeline. Uh, Paul, this is bad news for ad-funded journalism. It's good news, obviously, for the people who are sick and tired of adverts coming up whilst they're trying to read the news. But clearly, uh, a lot of these websites now rely on ads to fund, as I say, journalism, content, stuff that won't be there without the advertising revenue. I'd look at it in a bigger context, and that is if you look at the online video world, there's three basic ways in which you can pay for content. Um, You either pay via subscription, uh, you pay transactionally, uh, or you pay by advertising. And you've got three examples there in uh, iTunes, uh, Netflix, and uh, YouTube. Um, This is the same. This is someone who's a disruptor to the market, who's got a piece of technology, who's managed to stop ads appearing on websites, and I think it's perfectly legitimate. If people want to choose whether their content is ad-funded or not, they should have the absolute right to make that decision. So I think the court um, upheld the decision correctly. This is the world we're in. You've got to get used to the fact that there are people coming into this world, using technology, disrupting, changing things. That's where we are, and this is only the tip of the iceberg. Yeah, I mean, it's arguably no different, I guess, to people recording a TV show on their PVR and fast-forwarding through the ads that way. You've always been able to do it. But where does the money come from? And Paul suggested two other revenue models there. Lisa, do you think magazines and news publications are going to go down a subscription route instead of advertising? I just don't think that's best for the consumer, is it, really? Because, you know, how many things are you going to have to subscribe to to get access to news? And I could see that, you know, ads popping up all the time are can be annoying perhaps you just need more inventive creative interesting ways around that maybe sort of more advertorial or something but um i I just think you don't really i personally wouldn't want to have to subscribe to a whole string of different newspapers i would rather put up with the ads interestingly adblock plus in their comments about the case actually said what they want to do this is obviously a bit of spin really isn't it but what they want to do is work with these news sites to create advertising that's more compelling for people so they won't want to avoid it is such a thing possible Paul I mean even on YouTube when people do very compelling seven second ads you still press skip don't you after that seven seconds is up if there's a way to avoid someone will find a way I mean these guys have just been smart they've seen an opportunity 
and they've grabbed it. Now, you know, you could argue that what they're doing is inappropriate, and Lisa's right. You need to have advertising as a means of supporting news. Remember, advertising is the smallest of any of the advertising funding buckets now, both for television and for newspapers. So advertising is not the big funder. It isn't anymore. At the end of the day, I think consumers deserve a choice. And if they choose not to have advertising with their news, they should have that right. Let's talk about some professional trolls now. Katie Hopkins... Dun, dun, dun. and also Piers Morgan. Uh, they've both been in the news. Morgan back in the papers after confirming he's been interviewed for a second time about phone hacking at the Mirror during his time as editor, although he did say he went voluntarily to the police and it was a arranged interview. Uh, and Katie Hopkins, of course, causing outrage for an incendiary article in The Sun about the deaths of asylum seekers in the Mediterranean, in which she likened them to cockroaches. Uh, Lisa, let's start with Katie Hopkins, as it seems every news channel in the world does these days. Uh, there's a petition of over 200,000 people now to have her removed from the sun. Her planned TV show on TLC is in doubt, people say. Uh, but on the other hand, it's a good day in the office for her, isn't it? I mean, actually, we're talking about her. She needs the oxygen of publicity. That's mm. that's her business model. Absolutely. Uh, you know, better to be hated and in the news than, uh, than you know, not talked about at all. Um, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because you think, you know, her comments around immigration are just loathsome and she's it's toxic. It's It's hideous and there's no way that you can sort of defend it, really. At the same time, people like her are sort of important. You know, they play that role in... in stimulating debate. I mean, you know, you could say Nigel Farage, until he started talking about immigrants, it was something that Labour and Conservatives you know, didn't really dare discuss for fear of, you know, appearing racist or something. I mean, it, it sort of links to the um, the Trevor Phillips doc the other week, The Truth About Race. You know, almost this sort of PC attitude has actually caused a whole load more problems. So, yes, she serves a role on that level. And you know, kind of getting the rat out of the cupboard, really. And then sometimes it's, it's a good thing. You know, you had the National Front on Question Time and did they you, were totally Did you just destroyed. compare Katie Hopkins's views to a rodent? Because I think <laughs> you'll find that there's a petition about doing that. Um, <laughs> I mean, you're right, of course, that she raises the issue. She raises the issue. But the problem is that's her defence, isn't it, for then using this terminology, comparing people to cockroaches, which people rightly pointed out on Twitter, is what the Nazis did. Mm. I mean, does there come a point where you think, even if you were Katie Hopkins, you say... Actually, on this occasion, my language went too far. But of course, we can all understand she can't do that because as soon as she does that, then everything she says is under scrutiny again. But do you think actually secretly she thinks she went too far or the Sun think they went too far this time in publishing this particular column? I don't think she does think she went too far at all. I think she thinks, uh, you know, she has strongly held beliefs. Everyone else is all a bit bland, particularly politicians. She sounds genuinely convincing when she discusses this point that, you know, she isn't just doing it to fan the flames and, and keep herself in the spotlight. She does believe it and she believes a lot of people in the country believe it as well. Paul, where do you see all this ending up with Katie Hopkins? Because she is getting more and more airtime. She's being discussed in more places. She's getting her own shows. At some point, she's going to go even further, isn't she? And it's all going to end. Well, as Lisa says, there is a value in ensuring that the argument is aired. And in so doing, as long as people, you know, rational people believe that what she says is completely despicable and horrible, then that's fine. But I mean, clearly, if she continues to benefit uh, personally from further acclaim as a result of this, she's going to get more and more extreme. Of course she is. She has to continue saying things that are going to get her noticed in order to maintain the own, her own oxygen and publicity. I think there comes a point, and this, for me personally, is pretty much at the point where it's horrific and, and, and really is quite offensive and quite horrible to read and I I thought this was you know personally uh, really about the most I could take from her to be honest. And if if you were editor of The Sun would you 
feel the same as they did. Well, well we I'm should publish surprised. this as a legitimate voice in the paper. You know, I'm we've got a mix of views. I'm surprised the Sun didn't make some comment. I mean, I, I understand why she can't retract it. And I think, you know, Lisa's right. She she generally believes what she says. This is not something that she's creating. Uh, she generally believes this, I think. But the Sun, I'm surprised the Sun didn't, you know, make some comment suggesting that perhaps, you know, she'd gone too far or, or some sort of apology or something. But the fact they've said nothing did, did surprise me. When I was editor of Broadcast and we had a, you know, a couple of controversial columns that... Uh, I then had some uh, was criticised about, and, and I, you know, I felt as editor, you you're not there to agree with every single columnist in in the magazine, and what a boring magazine it would be if that was the case. So it, you know that it is a difficult one. I suppose there is a point at which you say, actually, are you inciting racial hatred? Are you crossing like legally or whatever? Then, as an editor, you clearly have to. That you, were, you, were, you were much more measured. What you did was you actually, again, provoked debate, but it was always backed up by rationale and argument. It didn't have this sort of emotive language in it. You know, I think that's the difference. Mm. But, then, but then, you know, broadcast isn't a tabloid, is it? No, the sun but, but does it's, that. it's still a style point, isn't it? I mean, you know, I mean, Lisa could have used, you know, inappropriate language in describing people who are acting in a stupid way, but you didn't. You kept it to a moderate level, but you still made the point, and it was still hard-hitting and controversial, but without the offence. But, you know, the point at which it's too far... You know, perhaps she's there already because if the rumours are true that, you know, they're struggling to sign up guests to, I'm told it's not a chat show, but, you know, whatever the, the, the show is, it's, there's clearly something in production or about to be, struggling to get celebrities to associate themselves with her in any way. That's the danger for, for her, that she just becomes too toxic for anybody and that the sort of the negative effect rubs off on whoever she associates with. OK, well, talking about hard-hitting and controversial, let's touch briefly on Piers Morgan as well. He's denied any involvement in phone hacking, as we know, and the Met and the Crown Prosecution Service have had a few setbacks in the past few weeks with regards to the Sun journalists accused of paying public officials. All four found not guilty, leading to other cases being dropped. Do you think, Paul, there is the appetite to pursue Morgan for phone hacking when again in the in the public's mind this is an old story now well he took part in these uh, meetings voluntarily as we understand clearly uh, in the light of what's happened recently with the cps i suspect there's gonna be a great deal more caution about pursuing him and pursuing others i think given his profile too he's, he's a smart guy he knows how to play it so i i think we're producing the tail end of this but um uh, interesting that it's carrying on uh, there was a Freedom of Information request, I think it was in the Press Gazette, about how much the police has spent on these inquiries. Mm, and it was upwards yes. of 30 million quid. I can't remember the exact yeah, figure. Yeah, th- 33 and a half million. There and, we go. And uh, something like, was it 99 journalists suspected of, of wrongdoing as well? So I think yeah, you do get a real sense of the scale of this. You know, 64 journalists have been arrested. I mean, if, you know, for... Um, Piers Morgan, you know, it's like Groundhog Day, isn't it? Because, I mean, back in November 2012, Lord Leveson described Piers Morgan's testimony as utterly unpersuasive and clearly proves that he was aware it was taking place in the press as a whole. Um, and he added he's sufficiently unembarrassed by what was criminal behaviour that he was prepared to joke about it. Well, unlike Piers on Good Morning Britain, I'm not going to go crashing into the ads. We'll take a break and we'll be back after this. Hello. I'm Leah Marks. I'm a voice artist and I'm bringing you today's sponsors. The media podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one website host and creator. With drag and drop tools and a range of beautiful templates, you can build a website for your new program or portfolio in minutes. Squarespace also offers e-commerce and podcast solutions and 24-hour phone support from their offices in the US and UK. For a free two-week trial with no credit card required, go to squarespace.com now. And if you like what you get and want 10% off a subscription, just use the offer code MEDIAPOD at the checkout. 
And if you like what you've heard, you can find more of my voiceover work at leahmarks.co.uk. Okay, let's tackle some of the other news stories doing the rounds this week. And there's an election on, in case you hadn't noticed, the major political parties have now finally announced their manifesto. So we have some idea of their future media policy. Uh, Lisa, you've had a look at the top lines. Give us an idea. Uh, Well, the Tories, uh, worrying for the BBC, not much for anyone else, but that's freezing the licence fee. Which we knew Um, anyway that it was frozen until charter renewal anyway, if the Tories come back in again. So all we know is that they're going to carry on doing the same thing, basically. Um, Labour, it's all about media plurality. And again, sort of same old argument for them, really. They want to stop the big beast, the kind of Murdoch sort of taking over and, and not having one very dominant player within the media. Quite vague, though, because we're not really getting any sense of how media ownership should be judged, um, how sort of Google and Facebook fit into things now, if there should be a cap and how, how large. I think, you know, a few years ago, Tessa Jowell talked about this and it was, I think it was around a 20% cap. Mm. But, um, you know, what Labour are saying, well, you know, we need to do the work on this and, and, and take advice and, and blah, blah, which, you know, in some ways is no bad thing because unlike the Tories, um, the last licence fee settlement was... Let's um, slash it by 25%. No discussion, just done, all kind of behind closed doors and and not very healthy for anybody, I think. So at least um, some discussion around it. The Lib Dems introducing public interest defence for journalists breaking the law. Uh, I think the Lib Dems, it's probably fair to say, is the one that journalists and broadcasters are going to feel happiest about. Uh, But of course, it's the one that's least likely to actually happen. Yes, yeah, so we can probably skip that, can't we? Uh, <laughs> and Well, I think we can definitely skip over UKIP and Green in terms yeah. of the likelihood of that actually being implemented. But when it comes to media plurality, the Labour policy, I mean, that sounds good, doesn't it? It's obviously playing into what Ed Miliband ran as a trump card when he was going anti-Murdoch, anti-phone hacking. Mm. Uh, but as you said, what does it actually mean when you can't even define the media? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss these days it doesn't really matter does it how many people own how many papers when you've got so many people getting news online anyway yeah and it's and it's the sort of public interest test isn't it and and public service and so therefore does it even refer or affect google and people like that i don't know it's um yes you can't really have any view on it when there are are no details and when they have the shadow 
arts minister doing interviews and he won't really even elucidate on the plans. It's just typical, isn't it, at this time of year? <laughs> but what you can have a view on, I suppose, if you're at the BBC is that it's going to be bad news if the Tories get back in because they're going to freeze and arguably shrink the money that you have and everyone else is saying that they won't. I mean, Paul, that is a concern for the BBC, isn't it? Well, the BBC can be more efficient than it is. You know, I've worked there and uh, the BBC doesn't need more money. I mean, it needs to be better at what it does. So I think the BBC being kept to RPI is completely sensible. Why should they have RPI plus? Why should they have more money, uh, you know, than other industries and, and other people doing other things? I just don't see that at all. So for the BBC, that the BBC still not properly gripped up doing things differently. What it's done is slice off limbs like BBC Three, but it's not properly grip things up. You know, you can talk to anyone who works in the BBC about, for example, the way they organise. Yesterday I had a conversation in the pub about how they organise their SM shifts for BBC News. And you compare what they do at Sky. Now, at Sky, the hours they work are actually based on physical hours behind the desk. At the BBC, it's a shift. Now, you might find you're doing one bulletin in your eight-hour shift, and the rest of the time you're sitting around doing nothing. That's the BBC for you. So the BBC can be more efficient. I think the plurality issue is, is very interesting because the trouble now is that the organisations that we might be concerned about are not UK organisations. It's not, it's not about what ITV or BBC or even Murdoch's doing with B-Sky-B. You know, you've got these huge global players now like, like um, uh, Amazon, uh, Netflix, Apple. You know, there's no way a UK government is going to regulate those guys. It's just not going to happen. Okay, so and, you, you can know, be relaxed look at about Virgin Media. Virgin Media is now part of Liberty Global, which is actually a Denver, Colorado company. So, you know, there's no detail because it's impossible to tie it down. It cannot be done anymore. You know, the genie's out of the box. Um, the big players are now transmedia, transglobal players. And that's the future. And, and you can't change that. That's not going to... A UK government can't change that. But it's all very well to say that the BBC doesn't need more money. But top slicing, as we know, is actually taking money away. That's the fear, isn't it, Lee? So they're, they're talking about putting money into broadband rollout again and all the rest of it. And people at the BBC say we can't have less money. Exactly. And I, th- I think that's, that is the concern around the, the Tories' proposal is not only freezing the licence fee, but continuing with top slicing and we don't know to what extent so broadband rollout is one thing but likewise Labour haven't really outlined their views on top slicing either so we don't know whether they agree with it or not and and to what extent that they would allow that you would assume that sort of given the fact that they won't freeze the licence fee that they would perhaps be more sympathetic to calls um, from within the BBC that it shouldn't be done thing about top slicing is as soon as you start doing that you confuse and of course once you slice one slice off you know how deep do you go I would argue that although there's no other solution the licence fee is probably the least worst way of funding the BBC and the critical thing for the BBC is to connect with citizens to do things that are distinctive to give platforms to new talent and so on and if they do that then we're willing to pay for the licence fee um, and that money should all go for the BBC what the BBC must do in return though is as well as offering high quality programmes be efficient at what it does and the BBC can be more efficient than it is. And of course if if the SNP do end up in a proper coalition then we'll all be going to Glasgow to get more work because they want more money in Pacific Quay don't they? Yeah I don't mind going to live in Glasgow in the summer. Also one thing that the politicians won't be drawn on is whether Channel 4 is up for privatisation. They're saying that's ruled out for now but they won't discuss whether or not it's an attractive proposition to do it in the future. Lisa do you think that should be something that's on the table for the next parliament? I think everything is worth um, discussing. Um, is it a good or a bad thing? I, I, I would argue 
no, that we, we shouldn't privatise Channel 4. I mean, the, the Tories have said they have no plans, as, as you say, but um, who knows? Um, I mean, I'm looking at their election night coverage. They've got Jeremy Paxman and David Mitchell uh, and a whole bunch of comedians coming in. It's a kind of alternative broadcast, kind of a comedy show. Uh, is that the kind of content do you think that they'd be doing, Paul, if they didn't have a public element to their structure? Do you think they'd still maintain that spirit if they were privately owned in five years' time? Well, I mean, I think Channel 4 has brought diversity and has brought real choice in the UK and has done some amazing things in its, its history. It has got an odd, odd sort of structure in a sense that it's actually a public service broadcaster funded by advertising. And therein you have a conflict because whenever you have an advertiser who's funding you, it has an impact on what you do, if only in terms of generating ratings, if not the actual editorial content at all. Somehow Channel 4 has managed to avoid that, although it's digital channels, you have to argue, if they are just acquired content, you know, what is different between the market doing that and a public service broadcaster doing that? But the core channel does still do interesting and innovative things. So I would argue not to privatise it. I think privatising it would send it in the wrong direction. Um, I'd rather keep it as a public service broadcaster and actually encourage it to do more innovation, uh, more interesting things, more minority things, and to be less uh, driven by ratings. It is for Channel 4. It's managing that tension between the commercial and the public service. And, and you know, arguably, they've managed that very well creatively. Um, but they are under increasing pressure in terms of in terms of advertising and the commercial side of things. So, yes, the kind of the ratings drive is quite intense. So re-examining their remit, particularly around diversity, they've announced their diversity charter now. So they really have to make sure that they deliver on, on that I mean, when I saw the uh, the alternative election stuff, I sort of my heart sank initially when I saw Jeremy Paxman because it felt as though Channel 4 have got such an important role to play in hooking in younger audiences and encouraging them to vote and to engage in politics. And so then what you go to the BBC and get someone from the BBC political establishment to front your coverage. But looking at the lineup now, the fact that they have got some interesting lineup of comedians and, and different diverse Lineup. I'm, I'm actually quite looking forward to it now, and I think that it could have a, quite a nice sort of Channel 4 distinctive quality. It seems to me as well to be quite an honest admission. It's a bit like being ITV on Christmas Day, really, isn't it? Everyone's going to be watching the BBC, really, as the results come in. But, you know, here's a show that you might dip in and out of for 10 minutes of something funny with David Mitchell or, a, a, you know, an interview with Jeremy Paxman that's trending, and, and that's what you'll use it for. You're not going to sit for the whole four hours and watch Channel 4. Then that's the whole point, isn't it? Channel 4 is doing something different. I mean, if the BBC is the place, the destination... Absolutely. Don't copy the BBC. Do something alternative. And they're doing that. So hurrah and well done. Indeed. Well, our next episode of the Media Podcast, by the way, comes out the day after the general election. So we'll bring you our coverage of the coverage then. Uh, but uh, do you know who you're going to be watching? Are you going to be up all night? Gonna, who, do you know who I'm going to be voting for? Uh, uh, <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. Just, that's very cheeky. Yeah. I'm going to be watching both. Okay. And you'll be, voting, and Channel you'll be voting purely on whether or not the party is going to privatise Channel 4, I imagine, as mm. well. Well, yeah. In, and in all likelihood, we'll be doing quite, uh, we'll be doing a session on how TV covered the election at Edinburgh. So I'll have to watch everything no, and no, listen to everything. <laughs> no excuse given up to get a plug in, is it? And, and quite <laughs> extraordinary. So beautifully as well. I've, I've just said you can listen to a show that comes out the day after. Or Lisa says, or you can come to Scotland two yes. months later and find out with me. Uh, other TV news now. The BBC's plans for a commercialised production wing called BBC Studios uh, may mean that Strictly Come Dancing and other big hits like that could be made by indies. Broadcast Magazine reports that several major independent producers have met with the BBC and have said the corporation should put its biggest shows out to tender as a condition 
of the move. Uh, Lisa, this is feisty behaviour from the independent sector, but you'd sort of expect it. It was always part of the discussion, wasn't it? Oh, well, if the BBC is going to open themselves up to all kinds of commissioning, then we should be able to pitch for their biggest shows. Do they have a point? Well, they do, because it is all about ensuring a level playing field. And so to open your doors for business with 450 million in the bank and, and, you know, some of the the best shows out there does seem to everybody else as a bit of an unfair advantage. And I think the indie sector would argue we can produce the same shows at the same quality, probably for a better tariff. You know, we can be more efficient. We should be allowed to have that opportunity. You know, on the other hand... Their BBC properties that have been funded by the licence fee originated and grown and been supported thanks to licence fee payers' money. So should they now be released to the market to line the pockets of the already rich super indies? Yeah, I mean, you, you could argue, well, if we're ignoring IP, then, you know, have I got news for you? doesn't have to belong to Hattrick anymore. We can pitch that out and anyone who wants to pitch for that can do that as well. This could end up backfiring on the indies who are asking for this. Yeah, and it, I mean, it means whoever, you know, they're announcing that they're looking for the BBC Studios boss now. Something of a poison chalice, perhaps, this, this role, because not only do you have to work out this hugely complex issue about who gets what at the end of the day, but you also have to start by making lots of people redundant. And what about the flip side of this, Paul? The BBC competing with indies to make shows for other channels. Uh, is that a good idea moving forward for the public? Well, I think you've got to think about what you want. And what you want is a BBC that's producing high-quality, distinctive programming at a very good price. And that, that has to be the goal. The independent sector has been extremely good at actually bringing ideas to the BBC and doing so efficiently. So my view on the, um, the shows that are currently BBC Gems, if the independent sector can make those and can make them at the same standard at lower price, as a licence fee payer, you benefit from that. And if a company makes some profit by doing so, it doesn't actually matter because as a licence fee payer, you're still getting better value for money. In terms of the BBC competing in the market, that seems to me to be distorting what the BBC is for. You know, the BBC is not meant to be a commercial organisation. You know, the heart of the BBC, you could argue, has been its production. You know, that's what keeps it distinctive. It needs to be a broadcaster doing different things to the market and continually innovating and being distinctive. If it starts competing in the market, you start to say, well, what makes it different from ITV productions or any other third party, you know, big or small, super indie or otherwise? So I think I think they've got to think very carefully about that because the BBC needs to make sure that it remains as a public service broadcaster with distinct programming that is not replicated by the market. And that the licence fee payer might benefit by yes. spending less. Yes. But what about the people who actually work on the shows? Because if, if money is being built into those budgets now to give profit to the executives who run the independent companies, then presumably all the crew, all the production team, they're getting paid less. Well, you're making an assumption that the difference in price is down to profit. It may be they're doing it smarter, better. Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, they're spending less on screen. You know, you look at um, uh, production companies around the world and uh, you know, they are often better than the public service broadcasters. Take the example of ZDF and ARD in Germany. I mean, better funded than the BBC. They pay more in Germany per household for public service broadcasting than we do in the UK. And the waste is huge. Okay, two stories of businesses on the up, finally. This week, Sky announced their best growth for 11 years. They now have almost 21 million customers. And Netflix have announced they've passed the 60 million subscriber mark, uh, although that is worldwide, of course, not just in the UK. Uh, Paul, those massive numbers for Netflix, uh, they're now talking about investing in Europe to widen their base here. Do you see the trend reversing at any point? 
Well, what's very interesting about Netflix, I think, is here's a business which didn't really exist seven or eight years ago and has been totally driven by content. Uh, they've invested in content, particularly in original productions, House of Cards being the most famous, now going to a fourth season. But they've also invested in a lot of acquisitions. And in fact, if you look at the amount spent on television, uh, Netflix now spend more than ProSieben, more than Sky, if you exclude the rights, more than the BBC on content. And their subscriber base is tracking the amount they're spending on content. So they're currently in a mode where they're spending and they're building up their distribution. And then at some point, they'll start going for profits. But it's really interesting how content is driving that business. And it's brilliant. And of course, what's great about the price point, I mean, is that people say, you know, seven, eight, nine quid or, you know, dollars, whatever it is. That's an easy decision, you know, compared to paying 50, 60 pounds for Sky, you know, under a tenner, it's sort of an easy decision. Yeah, I'll have it. And by the way, I'm not committed to a 12 month contract. So if I don't like it, I can churn out. That's why Netflix has been so successful. So why are Sky putting on the numbers then, Lisa? If you take Paul's analysis there, they've been slowing down for years. People are turning to Netflix and yet they've come out with these incredible figures. What's going on? Churn is, is, has been an issue and uh, they haven't been putting on the subscriber numbers in the past and they've exceeded analysts and expectations this time you know the fact that it is the lowest churn for 11 years that the content is there they they have invested huge amounts you know the football clearly is uh, upset people at the time for the amount they're spending but you know it, it, it's proving to be a winner the amount of original content in terms of um, things like fortitude now on sky atlantic alongside game of thrones um, i think there's just such a, a great commitment from sky that is really sort of paying off but there's also the issue of Sky having their over-the-top competitor, isn't there, Now TV, uh, which at the moment you've got the people paying 50 quid a month, you know, like my dad, and have been paying for the last 20 years for their Sky subscription. Then you've got people like me paying £8 a month to get Now TV uh, through my Roku box. But at some point, I guess, uh, you know, my parents' generation are going to die and everyone's going to be paying the 8 quid. So ultimately, are these revenues sustainable? Well, the, the growth has come. Uh, there's two things, really. The first thing is it's the first time they've actually aggregated Sky Deutschland, Sky Italia and B Sky B. So that's why you're seeing these larger numbers. Mm-hmm. And remember that the distribution in Germany and Italy is much below that in the UK. So there's fundamentally bigger growth happening in Germany, which is driving the overall Sky group. B Sky B as a DTH operator is growing very, very slowly. Uh, the growth in the UK has come almost entirely from Now TV. Uh, 90% of the growth has come from Now TV. And to answer your question about the ARPU question, the average revenue per user. What's really clever, the way they've marketed this, is people who actually have taken Now TV, over 90% of them would never consider buying Sky but they've bought Now TV. In Which fact, is many of them I've don't even know Sky are behind it, yeah. believe it or not. So what's happening is Sky have managed to hang on to their high ARPU customers on DTH and have added a whole new raft of younger customers on Now TV who have not been Sky customers. They've not churned down from Sky. So as Lisa says, the churn rates have improved. So they've basically added a whole new market segment. Um, and that's where the growth has come from. So these are much lower revenue uh, customers, but they are brand new customers, largely via the OTT platform. It's Paul Robinson, our FTMA specialist there. Far too many acronyms. Uh, Let's finish off now with the media quiz. Uh, This week it is entitled Switch Off, but don't, otherwise you'll miss the result. Uh, Several services have announced they're switching off in the near future. Lisa, Paul, buzz in when you know the answer with your name. I'm going to read you a piece from their announcement. You tell me who is switching off. The winner gets a full-page splash in the Metro. The loser gets backed by the Daily Express. Here's company number one. 
our fan base wants streaming downloads, specific programming, interviews, oh, and insight. Uh, uh, with your name, please, Paul. Uh, Paul. Paul. I'm clearly not Lisa, though, am I? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I don't think. In this case, that is a fair point. But, you know, I have to have the same rules for when we have I do uh, two men on the panel. Yes, Paul. So this is Team Rock, who have decided after two years to come off uh, Digital One, DAB, uh, and will cease, be broadcast, cease broadcasting in the UK and will now uh, offer a service which is effectively subscription. You can get uh, interviews and, and, and so on via uh, a website where you pay a certain amount per month to subscribe. And what's really going on? Because they're making this sound like this is all for the benefit of the listeners. But Team Rock, headed up by John Myers, big radio guy, obviously wanted it really to be a successful radio station as well. Well, the strategy hasn't worked. I mean, the strategy was to use the radio station to drive people to the website. And they haven't really achieved that. Um, They've quoted uh, a million uh, users, but they're not a million paying users. The paying users is substantially below that. So they're readjusting their strategy. Nothing wrong with that. You know, where they're going is a good place you know, to actually offer on-demand. We've been talking about it with TV, you know, digital in the last uh, few minutes. So to do it in radio, why not? The question is whether they can actually pull it off. So good luck. Uh, it's, a, it's a tough uh, change in strategy for them, but they're going to have to work hard to uh, make uh, money out of this. But team, it's only radio, as John would say. Well, exactly. Uh, right, number two. It sends a clear signal to Europe and the rest of the world that digital radio is the platform of the future. Who made that announcement? What are they switching off? Buzz in when you know the answer. Oh, this is... With uh, your name. Sorry, Lisa. Yes, Lisa. (laughs) Uh, This is Norway switching off FM. Correct. Yes, in 2017. Is it ever going to happen here, do you think? What what is increasingly irrelevant when it does happen here? Well, we've been talking about switching it off here for what? 50 years? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Well, no, I mean, I, I I did the original plan in 1995. Wow. When I was head of strategy at the BBC, uh, that we'd switch off uh, 10 years later. So we've missed that. I was completely wrong. Of course, we missed that by a decade. Um, you should remember, of course, Norway is a much smaller country. I mean, look, there's only uh, 5 million people in Norway. Uh, very high licence fee, though. I mean, it's €358, Euros, which is about um, uh, £300, pounds, so double what it is in the UK. Well, that only buys you three beers in uh, Norway. Then. Buy, OK. Um, so they, they've pushed it very hard, but easier in a smaller country. OK, well, you've got one point each, so this is the decider. It's question number three. Less than half of under 25s voted at the last election. Paul. So, yes, Paul. <laughs> you go on, you go in the same. No, go on, you go, go in there. E4. E4. Correct. We're going to have to split the prize. This is incredible. Uh, you both got this right, yes. Less than half of under 25s voted at the last election, so we've engaged the most powerful weapon that we have at our disposal to try and boost that number. That was E4 announcing they will not broadcast during the day of the general election. Uh, you were saying earlier that Channel 4 has a responsibility to try and drive younger people out to vote. So is this a good idea or is this just yeah, a press stunt? So, so switch off your channel, Channel <laughs> yeah. 4. Yeah, that's kind of what I was saying. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it's great. And they're going to cross-promote it on other channels, aren't they? And, and sort of, you know, it's quite a fun Channel 4 approach to, to that, I think. And having, is it Darren sitting there? manning the station saying go away go and vote there's, no, there's nothing here to, for you mm. to see i like that will it generate enough press do you think paul to make it worthwhile them not showing how i met your mother for the day well i mean i think that the fact that they're not watching e4 is not going to be the reason people might go to vote but the fact people are talking about it as we are now just raises the issue and of course you know whatever the outcome of the election it is important you vote whatever age you are and we should encourage people to vote so it's a democracy so i think you know good to channel four i like it smart clever bit different yeah 
big tick for me. But much cleverer to have a whole day of fantastic programming yes. for 16 to 34s, getting them into politics. Yeah, but, you know, but it's a start, this is a good second one. I, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I humbly agree with what you just said completely. I, I'm sure the executives on Horse Ferry Road will be pleased enough with a 30-second discussion in the media podcast. I'm sure that has made their week. Uh, that's it for today. My thanks to Lisa Campbell and to Paul Robinson. Thank you. Uh, you can find all our previous instalments and get the new episodes downloaded automatically straight to your phone. Just head to themediapodcast.com. Today's show is dedicated to Phil Mansell, who is the executive producer for RuneScape, the online video game, and to Andrew Gervin, uh, who he says is definitely not renowned enough to have a podcast dedicated to him. Well, it's co-dedicated, Andrew. You can probably cope with that. Uh, if you're a voiceover artist like Leah Marks earlier and you want to tout your trade by recording our advert, tweet us at The Media Podcast and we'll send you a script. I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill. Until next time, bye-bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.